Father, we do praise you, for you are the reason why we exist. And we will never find true fulfillment until we find it in you. In a personal relationship with you as Father and as Lord, where we surrender to you and we find the calling you have for each and every one of us. Help us. Whatever we might face on this planet, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit and you would bring about your purposes for us. And teach us in your word today about this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. To turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 40, we're going to look at, that's on page 656 in the Bibles that we give away. So if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and someone will bring you one. Okay, we're going through the book of Hebrews verse by verse, and uh, we're at chapter 11. Uh, This is the end of chapter 11. The whole chapter 11 is all about faith. So we're going to be looking at uh, one final message on faith. And, uh, and today we're going to see how faith sees the whole picture. Faith sees the big picture, the God's plan from beginning to end. Now, you may or may not have noticed that I have a cup on the podium. Do you all see it? Okay, everybody? Everybody see it over there? Can you? No, no, no. Here it is. Just want to make sure everybody sees it. Okay, got it. Now, here's the question. Is it half full or is it half empty? Okay, good, good, good. Some would say that it's completely full. You just need to believe. Others would say it's completely empty and wouldn't even take a drink. Now, the first service, I went ahead and took a drink. And the second service, I'm not going to. Because it wasn't taken out of the filtered water. It was taken out of the non-filtered water, which is really bad tasting, which is why we got the filtered water things put in there. But anyway, so just pretend, okay? <laughs> but some, some wouldn't even take a drink, and I'm not going to, but that's not me. Does that make sense? Okay, okay. This, because <laughs> this cup represents the kingdom of God, okay? Got the visual picture. So this represents the kingdom of God. In Acts chapter 12, James and Peter were arrested by Herod. James was killed and Peter was miraculous. They were both captured by Herod and James was killed and Peter was miraculously rescued by an angel, right? Why? Why one Why was one killed and the other rescued? Peter's family were rejoicing, obviously, while James' family were mourning. Why does God sometimes heal and sometimes he doesn't? Why are we sometimes delivered from suffering and other times delivered through suffering? A biblical faith requires a theology of glory and a theology of suffering. 
Now, typically, when you, and this is probably a caricature, but typically when you look at charismatic and non-charismatic evangelical churches, okay, the charismatic churches will tend to have a good theology of glory and the non-charismatic a good theology of suffering, okay? And as we're going to see in our passage, we need both, so perhaps both groups can learn from each other. And that's what I hope. Um, the kingdom of God is both now and it's not yet. Uh, the cup isn't full because we're still waiting for Jesus to come back, the king to come back. But the cup isn't empty because the Holy Spirit is here. And if you're going to err on one side or the other, err on the side of Tigger rather than Eeyore. Okay? <laughs> the cup is half full, not half empty. All right? And I want to drink as much as possible without getting presumptuous, obnoxious, or arrogant. Let's look at our passage. Hebrews 11, verse 32. And what more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength in weakness, became mighty in battle and put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Other people were tortured, not accepting release so that they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they died by the sword, they wandered about in sheepskin and goatskin, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these were approved through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, so that they would not be made perfect without us. Now, those who saw the miraculous hand of God and those who endured tremendous suffering are placed side by side and called people of great faith. That's what we see in our passage. We see a theology of glory and a theology of suffering. He starts out with the theology of glory. And you don't want to miss what he's saying in verses 32 through 35a, where we see these incredible exploits by these men and women of God who chose to trust in God and see incredible things take place in their lives because they believed in a God who can do anything. Now, what's really fascinating, especially when you look at these people, it says Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, those particularly... Those guys had flaws, didn't they? Uh, in fact, the first point here is flawed lives marked by remarkable faith. That's what we see here. Let me read something from Albert Moeller. He explains this. 
He says, the lives of those mentioned in this passage serve as examples for us. Were they perfect examples? No. Luther's dying words, which underscore our need, apply to them. We are beggars. This is true. Gideon demanded signs from God and led Israel to sin when he made an ephod. That's in Judges chapter 6 and chapter 8. Samson was sexually promiscuous and broke his covenant with God, Judges 13 through 16. Jephthah vowed to sacrifice his own daughter in Judges chapter 11. David committed adultery with a woman and tried to cover it up by arranging the death of her husband. That's 2 Samuel 11. Even so, the author does not remember them for their flaws. He commends them for their faith. Though they sinned, their lives were ultimately marked by their faith in God, which the author highlights in verses 33 and 34. They failed, yet accomplished each of these feats by faith, so they serve as examples of remarkable trust in God. (laughs) Flawed lives marked by remarkable faith. God doesn't wait until you get your act completely together before he decides to use you. Now, that's good news, isn't it? (laughs) Okay? If he waited for us all to get our act together, he probably wouldn't use anybody, would he? So he's using these flawed characters who were willing to step out. And so what I would say to you is step out. If you're thinking, well, but I'm still a work in progress. Yeah, welcome to the club. Right? Now, I do want to say, don't use this as an excuse to be lazy or to uh, lazy in your discipleship is what I mean. Or uh, don't use it as an excuse to just hold on to your besetting sin. God does give us great and tremendous uh, power and strength to be able to overcome sin. In fact, I want you to look at 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. This is a great promise from God to believers. And it is absolutely true. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 13. There it is. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. He is promising us that he will not even allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able to bear. And with it will give us the strength to overcome. But he's shows us and gives us a way out. So you got to look for the way out. So when you get tempted, you don't stare at the temptation. You look for the way out, and God will provide that. That's his promise. We don't want to use this as an excuse. Okay, God used flawed people, so I'm just going to stay in my flaws, right? But he does use flawed people just like us, and that's the good news. And then it goes on and he speaks of how he used them. And one of the things that sticks out to me is that in faith, they saw political structures conquered. He specifically starts, he says with these people who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and obtained promises. So 
conquered kingdoms. Now, he's probably referring to Israel, who was able to defeat the surrounding nations that were attacking them and so forth when they were trusting in their God. And so what we're speaking of here and what he's speaking back in the Old Testament about is what's called a theocracy. Are you familiar with what a theocracy is? It's where the nation's king is God himself, okay? And in the world, there's only been one true theocracy, and that was Israel, okay? So there's some uniqueness to this uh, because, and especially now under the new covenant, God is no longer working through the one particular nation, but rather is working through a transnational people. So there's some continuity and discontinuity with this, but we do see that God conquers kingdoms, administers justice, and his people can obtain these promises. So the wrong way to see this, uh, forcing Christianity on a nation is not what Jesus had in mind, right? Okay, in fact, that you look in the Middle Ages, that's kind of what took place. That's going overboard. But influencing even politics for God's glory and the good of the people of that nation is biblical. We see this uh, in, with Daniel. Daniel, he actually influenced both the Babylonian and the Persian kingdoms being involved there in a political way. We see this influence. Uh, I think of more modern uh, examples of this. We see this with William Wilberforce. Have you heard of him? William Wilberforce in England. He, if you've ever seen the movie, it brings out his involvement in politics because he was involved in parliament. But the thing it doesn't bring out very much, which we know from history is true, is his tremendous uh, effort in prayer. He combined both. But through that, he brought about the abolition of slavery in England long before our country got rid of it. And that is a good thing, isn't it? Aren't we glad that by the power of the Holy Spirit, he served in that capacity and he, by God's strength, conquered kingdoms and administered justice? And so we see these examples. I think of our own country, the Protestant work ethic that was, that was brought into this country through the Puritans was a good thing. In fact, we're still experiencing the benefits of that, though that is waning in our country. There is a spiritual battle going on in our country right now over especially the issue of abortion. Just recently, we have laws passed in the state of New York and in the state of Virginia, basically making it legal to for infanticide, to kill a baby right up to birth. And that is a slaughter that is absolutely horrible. In this country alone, over 40 million babies have been killed. 
That's far more than any of the wars we've ever been involved in. Far more. And yet we see on the other side, we see Iowa, we see Alabama, uh, we see Utah passing laws to stop that horrendous slaughter. Should we be involved in that? Can we pray, not just for personal salvation, but for a change in our society? And maybe even have a part in that change? Can we pray for St. Cloud State University to become a, a, a university that's open and welcome to Christians, perhaps, who can make a difference in the lives of people? hope so. Can we pray that Somali would become synonymous with Christian in Minnesota? What is our part in all of this? Now, one thing we do know, I want to say this, Ephesians 4.15 has to be our motto. Speak the truth in love. That's how it has to be done. The hatred thing is not a part of who we are as Christians. But they conquered kingdoms and administered justice and received the promises. And in faith, they saw incredible miracles. I love the miracles that are mentioned here. He says, shut the mouths of lions, clearly a reference to Daniel in the lion's den, thrown into the lion's den where they had these Lions that they basically starve so that when someone goes down in there, they have a nice feast, right? But apparently these lions weren't hungry at all until after Daniel got, got, you know, got out and the other guys were thrown in. <laughs> okay, then they all of a sudden got hungry. Okay, quenched the raging of fire. Probably a reference to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We'll talk about them in just a moment. Escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength and weakness, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Both Elijah and Elisha raised a child of two different women uh, you know, back to life again. And so that's what it's referring to here. Incredible miracles. Quenching the raging fire, Daniel, Meshach, and Benny here we see in Daniel chapter 3. Go ahead and turn there. Daniel chapter 3, verses uh, 16 through 18, and I want to look at this one particularly because I love their response. You see, what's going on is Nebuchadnezzar built this large statue and he commanded everyone to bow down to it and worship. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused, and then so he told them, Unless you do, I'm going to throw you into this fiery furnace. And this is their response. Look at it. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. Like, yeah, in your face, <laughs> okay? Actually, they were you know, probably nice. But anyway, 
But you notice here, look at their response of faith. They said, we're trusting in our God. He can actually deliver us. Even if we're thrown into that fiery furnace, he can deliver us. But even if he doesn't, notice they're not, they don't believe necessarily that he's going to deliver them. Even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down to that thing. And so that's real faith, to believe that he can and often does. But we don't know maybe in our particular situation whether he's going to or not. But that's faith where they're saying, and you know the end of the story. He did deliver them. He actually, they didn't get hurt. They didn't even smell like smoke when they came out. You know, and I'm thinking like that. You know, when you're ever next to somebody who's puffing away and whatever, you know, you, you start smelling like smoke and whatever. They didn't even smell like smoke, but being in the fire, right? Okay, that's, that's amazing because that's our God. He can do that back then, and he can do that today. And that's the point. That's this theology of glory to help us know that God is, he is awesome. He is incredible. You remember the the testimony, Greg's testimony last week. He, the week before there was a word, uh, he held out his hands, he prayed to receive, and he got healing of his wrist, completely, completely healed. God can and does that stuff still to this day. And that's a theology of glory, that the kingdom of God is here somehow, at least in part, and incredible things can take place. And I'll tell you what, not this cup, this cup. I want as much water, as much of the kingdom as possible, right? I want, I, uh, so we need this theology of glory, but we also, as our passage brings out, need a theology of suffering. Because he continues on Uh, Right in mid-verse of verse 35, it says, women received their dead, raised to life again. Other people were tortured, not accepting release so that they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonment. And we see the suffering. You see, a faith that rests in God no matter what, that's real faith. The sign of mature faith is not miracles. It's how we react to trials. I believe a window of opportunity is coming for revival and even a great awakening. Now, that's my belief. I believe that that is coming, and I think that's why God is leading us to pray in that direction, okay? But I also believe that either with it or shortly thereafter, persecution will also come. Now, I could be wrong about both, right? But if that's the case, we want to be prepared with both the theology of glory as well as the theology of suffering. Persecution can be hard but tolerable in God's strength. When we see this persecution... The, the bonds of imprisonment, the scourgings, the mockings, uh, they were stoned, they were sawed in two. They died by the sword. Sawed in two is probably a reference to Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah, at least in, uh, uh, there's no biblical reference to this, but the, in tradition it said that Isaiah was sawn in two. Uh, first service I said towards the end of his life. And I, no, it was actually at the end of his life. <laughs> All, right. All right, 
So, uh, but we see this persecution taking place, but God will give us the strength to endure whatever we have to face. And by the way, here's one of those other promises. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. This is one of those promises that are typically not in the promise books, right? Here's the promises of the Bible book. It says in 2 Timothy 3, 12, in fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So according to the word, it is coming. John MacArthur talks about this in his commentary. And he is specifically mentioning this uh, verse 35 where it says, other people were tortured, not accepting release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. He says, here is the pinnacle of faith, willingness to accept the worst the world has to offer, death, because of trust in the best God has to offer, resurrection. Tortured, the word tortured, is from the Greek tympanizo, from the same root as the English timpani, a kettle drum. The particular torture referred to involved stretching the victim over a large drum-like instrument and beating him with clubs, often until dead. God's faithful are willing to be beaten to death rather than compromise their faith in him. I want to read you a quote from Menno Simons. Menno Simons was the founder of the Mennonites, and he's writing about some tremendous persecution that he witnessed in the 16th century. This is what he says. For how many pious children of God have we not seen during the space of a few years deprived of their homes and possessions for the testimony of God and their conscience, their poverty and sustenance written off to the emperor's insatiable coffers? How many have they betrayed, driven out of city and country, put to the stocks and tortured? How many poor orphans and children have they turned out without a farthing? Some they have hanged, some have they punished with inhuman tyranny and afterward garroted them with cords tied to a post. Some they have roasted and burned alive, some holding their own entrails in their hands have powerfully confessed the word of God still. Some they beheaded and gave as food to the fowls of the air. Some have they consigned to fish. They have torn down the houses of some. Some have they thrusted into muddy bogs. They have cut off the feet of some, one of whom I have seen and spoken to. Others wander aimlessly hither and yon in want, misery and discomfort in the mountains and deserts, holes and clefts of the earth, as Paul says. They must take to their heels and free away their wives Flee away with their wives and little children from one country to another, from one city to another, hated by all men, abused, slandered, mocked, defamed, trampled upon, styled heretics. Their names are read from pulpits and town halls. They are kept from their livelihood, driven out into the cold winter, bereft of bread and pointed at with fingers. can imagine what it was like for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And persecution still takes place today throughout the world. But God does promise us he will give us the strength to endure anything. 
In fact, the Anabaptists, one of their signs that they would use if they were being burnt at the stake, once the ropes were burnt off, they would put the two fingers up in the air, letting the others know, the other Anabaptists, God is giving me the grace to endure. And that is his promise to us. So whatever we have to face, he will see us through it. But we need to be prepared. We need to be ready. Persecution can be hard but tolerable in God's strength. And suffering is the norm in a broken world. We see, he moves on, and he speaks of how uh, they wandered about in sheepskin and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. Learjets, luxury cars, and mansions are not mentioned here, are they? Suffering is the norm in a broken world. Another one of those promises that aren't found in the promise books. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. He says, So then, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. The Bible says that at times it is God's will that we suffer but we entrust ourselves to our faithful creator even when we don't understand and we continue to do good because we know that he has a grand plan that includes a theology of glory and a theology of suffering and in the end all is made right. And in the end, resurrection comes. That was the the thing that he mentioned to them as well at the end of verse 35, so they might gain a better resurrection. The resurrection is coming, and and God sets everything straight in that. Uh, F.F. Bruce speaks of this. He says, the martyrs had the faith to perceive that death and the gloom of Sheol could not be the final issue of their loyalty to God. The hope of resurrection blazed up and burned brightly before their eyes, giving them added courage to endure their torments. He then says, Faith in God carries with it no guarantee of comfort in this world. This was no doubt one of the lessons which our author wished his readers to learn, but it does carry with it great recompense of reward in the only world that ultimately matters. That's the one to come. The resurrection's coming. Now, our passage concludes, verses 39 and 40, that something better is here. Look at how he finishes He's been speaking of these Old Testament saints and their great examples of faith. Now, verse 39, he says, All these were approved through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us so that they would not be made perfect without us. Something better for us. Okay? I like that. Uh, William Barclay, in his commentary, he says, In the end, he says a great thing. All these died before the final unfolding of God's promise and the coming of his Messiah into the world. 
It was as if God had so arranged things that the full blaze of his glory should not be revealed until we and they enjoy it together. The writer to the Hebrews is saying, see, the glory of God has come, but see what it costs to enable it to come. That is the faith which gave you your religion. What can you do but be true to a heritage like that? Jesus ushered in the telos of biblical history, the the end, the ultimate conclusion. The Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints are made complete together in Christ. The something better for us is certainly the personal relationship with God that we are capable of experiencing now that Christ has come. An incredible In the Old Testament, only a few, the the high priest was allowed into the very presence of God, and and then only once a year with sacrifice. The rest experienced his presence, but it was from a distance. And now, though, we can enter into the very holy of holies. We can have that incredible experience with God himself, that personal relationship. But I also believe it entails the experiential empowering of the Holy Spirit because now we, if you repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit, God himself, to live within you. And the Holy Spirit, he is awesome. When you, when you think about this, and it's an experiential encounter, I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Here we see uh, a, a, a reference to the Holy Spirit and a promise again. Ephesians 1, verse 13, Paul says, In him, in Christ, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Now, here, this second verse, the Holy Spirit is the down payment. The Greek word there is erebone, and it means down payment, okay? Now, do you know what a down payment is? Have you ever bought a house or bought a, uh, a car on loan and you had to put down a down payment? It's actually real money, isn't it? It's not just a promise. You actually give them money, right? And then, but that's you give them some money with the promise that much more is coming, right? That's what a down payment is. Now, the Holy Spirit is God's down payment to us. He's... It's not just a promise. We experience the kingdom of God. We experience this incredible power of the Holy Spirit now. Now it's as a down payment with much more to come when Jesus comes back, right? So when he comes back, whoa, the full glory of God, right? But And these might just be glimpses and tastes of his goodness, but boy, can they be incredible, as we're seeing even in the Old Testament? How much more in the New Covenant? So that's what he's promising to us, the Holy Spirit, as a down payment, uh, that experiential empowering, that's the something better for us as a promise to the complete the completion to come. The cup is even more 
than half full. (laughs) Do you believe? Do you see the whole picture? Let's pray. Father, we, I enjoy focusing on the first part rather than the second. (laughs) But we recognize that whatever we have to face, you will see us through. But we don't want to miss out. We don't want to just do business as normal. Please come and fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give each of us a glimpse of that potential, a glimpse of what you can and want to do even now in this life through us. And help us, even if we're not perfect yet, to step out in faith and see you come through. I do pray that you would strengthen us through whatever suffering that we have to go through, that Holy Spirit, you would be our comforter, but Holy Spirit, also be our empower. Give us a theology of glory and suffering until Christ returns. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.